No, no, I think we can um, start, but it's Kate and Rhea who are the facilitators of this. Oh. Uh, this here, beautiful <laughs> meet <-off. laughs> I'm like, no, it's Kate's, it's Kate's, it's Kate's. I was just being extra Capricorn. Oh, I, yeah, I, I saw that. I was like, ooh, ooh. I saw that. I was like, but then Cassian came out of nowhere being like super duper organizer. She was like, use the key system. I was like, oh, okay. Yes, <laughs> I mean, if we did, then we would be there for days going, well, I'm free this day. I'm free this day. I'm free this day. Organizing Sagittarius. I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> like, I don't know how things happen, but I'm just glad to be there. I know. Kate was like, oh, cool, everybody's hanging out. <laughs> Hello. Listeners and happy, happy week. Um, it feels like a really long time since last week. That cancer solar eclipse world did us all in. Um, how have you been? How was your week? How have you been enjoying yourselves? I hope the weather's been good. I've been... It's been a time, but it feels like I'm always hitting you up and it's been a time. Um, so in news, I ordered a microphone finally online. I didn't want to buy from the arseholes that are Amazon. And so I managed to get one off eBay, swooped in with a last minute bid for 26 quid, which is half of the 50 quid price you'd have to pay to get it on Amazon. So I feel good about myself there, saving money and not using Amazon. It's funny, I have uh, a lot of hangovers left over from when I had no money, from when I was poor, and one of them is shopping, like I just do myself in rather than pay the extra, and like I wait until, yeah, like someone sells a used one on eBay. But it's good, and it's also better for the environment that way. We should all be much more mindful in our consumerism. Um, I haven't shopped at Amazon in years. I fundamentally don't agree with slave labor, which is what Amazon runs on, and no benefits for its workers. And I'm not interested in making this guy, who's a trillionaire almost, any richer. Um, the same as I also try not to buy new clothes. I haven't really bought new clothes in any kind of big way since I was 23. When I left university, I stopped buying clothes. I didn't have any money after I left university because I lost all my grants and stuff. So I stopped buying clothes and I asked friends for their old clothes. And that's where I get my clothes from. And it works. It's worked out. Um... But living in Berlin means that's why I wear a lot of black. It's not actually my colour of choice. It's what everyone else's colour of choice is. And so I have to put up with it. But you can do that. And we need to be mindful in our consumption now. So I'm only buying things like, for instance, I got drunk the other week and ordered £60 worth of books from a black-owned bookstore on all written by black writers. That is the kind of good drunk purchasing we like. I don't know if I mentioned this in last week's episode or not. We'll find out. You'll find out. I'm not going to go back and listen to it. I already listened to it enough when I edited it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be mindful of these things. We're buying from black-owned businesses. We are not trying to make billionaires rich, any richer. We're going to be, yeah, just good with our consumption stuff. And I will not buy from... I like check companies now. See if they posted something about Black Lives Matter. And if they did, then maybe not. A black-owned business, I'll consider them. But only if I can't get it from a black-owned business. Like a crystal dildo, for example. Maybe there are black-owned crystal dildo companies, but I couldn't find one in my hunting. Anyway, uh, speaking of consumption of black things, I've been listening a lot to the Galdam podcast. So Galdam is a online and print magazine for women and non-binary people of colour. And they've got a podcast, and it's really, it's a really good podcast. They've got some really great um, 
Gesson, Candice Carty-Williams, and Michaela Cole, who does Chewing Gum, and the new I May Not Destroy You, which is on the BBC, which and HBO, I believe, in the States. It's so good, but do not binge watch it one night in on a come down because it will trigger a lot of things it triggered a lot of stuff for me it's about sexual assault but it's so so good she's just such a phenomenal writer she made chewing gum which was a sitcom in the uk which you can also check out and candy's carty williams wrote queenie the book which was a book we did for our book club recently which i'm i think they're still organizing the book club i feel like i can check out of it now um i like to organize stuff and then leave which is interesting, actually, that I said that, because this today's episode demonstrates a bit of that kind of thing in me, which is like, I like organising stuff and then leaving, which is kind of how I ended up treating my comedy career. I was like doing open mics for a bit, and then I was like, I think there should be a women's open mic, you know, for femme-identified people to do comedy. And I made it, and then... I was like, there should be a Women of Colour showcase. And it's like, now I never have time to practice my own comedy. Everyone's like, why do you have, like, two shows and not an hour yet? Which, like, in comedy terms, you'll do, like, you'll get your five, you'll get your ten, you'll get your twenty, and then you'll build up to an hour. And I'm running two shows with, like, possibly 20 minutes of material. And it's just the nature of who I am. I'm like, I want more people involved. Like, bring more people up. And then it's just part of how I understand myself, but that's also a problem because I've spent my life being quite accommodating and agreeing with people, and then I end up being screwed over, which is a lot of thoughts that have been coming up lately. But I was reading a Gaudam article that was promotion for I May Not Destroy, and they talked about black women's tears and black women in therapy, which is a sort of interesting... A top, there's so many things you can like, there's a decolonizing therapy Instagram account, you can follow that, sort of like interesting ideas about like what therapy is and like how, because I remember going to therapy, my mum had this old white man therapist we used to go to when I was struggling a bit as a teenager and we went recently like a year or so ago because we were fighting again and we left and because I'm older now and I have different resources and discourses that enable me to understand the world and my place in it, I was like, well, yeah. So the issue was like, my mum felt like, I need to grow up. And it's true, I do behave like a child. But, um, and he was like, why aren't you growing up? And it's like, yeah, but someone has to therapise you into a culture. And if you're like an old white man that went to Cambridge and lives in the countryside in the UK in like a nice house on a hill, probably with an arga. For those that don't know... An agar is a kind of... Okay, I'm making my life really complicated here. An agar is a type of cook that posh people have, basically. Um, you know, my life in Berlin is going to look like I'm not adhering to the proper rules. But, like, who's to decide what, like, a correct life is? Is the point. So I, I'm, I'm very much of that sort of interesting... Uh, I like to question things. So... Yeah, I found through this article an association of black and Asian therapists, psychotherapists in the UK, and then I found one nearby. So I'm going to try and get therapy here. I do think therapy is like, it's a problematic tool as well because only so many people can access it and so on. The NHS waiting list in this country are really high. But I also believe there's no point if I have the money and the means right now to access therapy not doing it for some kind of principle because other people can't doesn't help anyone. If I'm walking around carrying a load of unhealed trauma, I'm not helping anyone, least of all myself. Anyway, I went off on a real tangent there. It's interesting, I think, at the moment, we're having so... Because this Black Lives Matter thing is happening, and of course, it's certain aspects of it are fading away, and for me, I'm in a sort of weird... Yeah, because I'm in a kind of weird headspace at the moment. I've deactivated my Facebook and Instagram accounts, which is kind of when I've ended up on Twitter, but sort of put the app to one side. I'm not really answering my messages. That's I'm not fine. To say I'm fine would be a lie, but I also don't 
engage very well when I'm not fine and I don't really have much chat in me. So that's okay. You can also disengage in this moment. There's so many articles and stuff happening for Black Lives Matter. There's, there is what feels like a shift, but I wonder how long it's going to last. The Guardian yesterday did a black culture special where they invited people who were representatives in theatre and architecture and so on to have conversations with one another. And one of the conversations was between Gina Yashri and London Hughes, who are both British black women comedians. And Gina Yashri very famously left the UK and went and did most of her work in the US, which is like hugely racist and problematic, but she always said like, the British have racism down to a subtle art, like a fine art. We are so good at racism, you don't know it's happening to you, which is kind of how the, the British function and also why we were so successful in literally stealing everything in the world. And London Hughes, whose show I went to go see, uh, To Catch a Dick, <laughs> great name. Yeah, I went to go see her in January, I took my friend, and she said, I'm going to the US, and afterwards we went to a bar, and I remember crying to my friend and being like, I know exactly why she's going, and Gina Yashri had done that ten years early, which is what this article says, which only came out this week, but I just knew exactly why she was leaving. And when you're a black comedian and you're a woman as well, these things are, you know, these things intersect. To already see that your career is kind of over or limited before you've even got begun is one of like the hardest things. You then have to end up fighting against that your whole life. Why do something where you know your career is over before it's begun? And people gatekeep it very well. I felt certain aspects of the comedy community, and this is not, not to name names or anything, but certain aspects of the comedy community in Berlin were very, had a feeling about the fact that I went and made my own shows, even though I was like a baby. And I get it, like there's a official way you're supposed to follow. People have these ideas, like there's official rules and stuff. But for me, it I want more black comedians and I want more women on the scene for support so that, it doesn't feel like you're fighting a battle alone. And when Mayoa, who was, who's from, she's Nigerian and American from the US, she was doing such great comedy and made Issa comedy and hip hop in Berlin. And when she did her one woman show, Queen Kong, like, it was the same thing. I cried after that. And it was funny because my friend Edna, actually, who you're going to hear in today's episode, said, turned to me and said, don't cry, one day you'll have your own show. And I was like, that's not what it was about. It was about the fact that she was leaving and I was losing. I was like, I can't do this alone. Like, I need there to be another black woman on the scene for so I don't feel like I'm always up to bat by myself. And of course, like, yes, I get spots because of diversity kind of quota mentality. But there's, it just, you are just so alone. And it's, and it's, funny that which is actually bringing me quite well on to the subject of today's podcast <laughs> love in the time of I didn't even tell you what you were listening to you knew what you were listening to you clicked on it why do people do that I don't know it's fine and that's black women solidarity so I've been thinking a little bit about that um Rachel Cargill I believe quote that was like white women and black men will always be the weakest links in the struggle for equality because they believe that equality is being equal to white men and white men have nothing without the oppression of other people and I think of course that's a really like reductive quote in a lot of ways and whatever but it's it's so interesting to watch those dynamics played out very much in real time and I've experienced that a lot in my life with certain people who've tried to undermine me and so on. And I always kept it very private because what can you do, really, to be honest? But I do believe that black women and actually I think if we're going to, like, break out of, like, gender idea, and this is very much like the woman with the X, and this is very much also trans people who are at the forefront of the fight, so often especially... Black trans people at the forefront 
of the revolutionary fight and their lives are so at risk and I also would include like non-binary people and of course gender is complicated as well but there is something about the way black women in this moment are leading this revolution and we are the first and the last of the revolution because we're the only ones that cannot be bought because they will do us over both with race and with our gender and that's why we need intersectionality so go google Kimberly Crenshaw if you don't know who that is um, I've had the privilege to see her speak twice and she's amazing phenomenal and there are so many black women we don't know about and I was listening to another podcast history becomes her uh, with Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff, who is one of the founders of, or the editors of Galdem, which you should also check out. You should also go check out Daddy, where my article is. Oh, I wrote an article, did I? I have so many things to tell you guys, and I have so little time, and this is supposed to just be an introduction. I wrote an article about white women and the weaponization of victimhood. And then I'm having this whole kind of thing now, a lot of people are sharing it, and I also feel like a lot of people are sharing it who are like perpetrators of it. And so I'm going under this kind of real collective gaslighting at the moment, which feels exhausting. But that is another thing. Where was I? Where did I fall down this rabbit hole? Oh, black women. And then you don't hear about their stories. Oh, another coincidence happened today. Google has decided to celebrate the what would have been the 68th birthday of Olive Morris, who is a black British pioneer of like black liberation and freedom and who died at 27 and who was involved in so many things is in Brixton. That's the place to be. And I mentioned Brixton as well in our conversation. And I'm just like sitting here wondering why I don't hear these names and why we don't learn about them. And, and we, we know why. It's white supremacy. It always is. And I've stopped calling it white privilege. I'm really calling it white supremacy because go fuck you and your privilege. <laughs> I'm angry. Or am I? Or am I just tired? We'll find out. Anyway, I just think black women have everything to say and we are leading the revolution at the moment. Um, Edna, who you'll hear in this conversation, has written a really great article on Survivor's Guilt, which is in Al Jazeera. Jennifer Neal, who's another Berlin-based writer and artist, has written a really good one in The Cut. Black feminism, there is so much works out there. There's so many things. Go order the books. This is your liberation, your movement. It's just, yeah. I just, anyway. I just, maybe I just love black women. I just think they're amazing. So that's why for this episode, I wanted to let you in on one of our discussions. Our discussions do happen, I think, often in private and very amongst ourselves and how we choose to express ourselves together is a certain thing and very different. And I want to invite you to listen to that and hope that you can learn from that. And it, I just think this is the moment for a lot of other people to be quiet and listen to people that have been historically some of the most historically, what am I talking about, present day, still ensure that these people do not get space and time to speak. So I'm going to list the names of the voices you're going to hear. It is the lovely Rhea. And Tweti, who do the Tanti Table podcast. It's Edna, who does Decolonization in Action podcast. There's Roper, who does the Afrocone podcast. It's Cassianne, who does Tones of Melanin TV, which is on YouTube. And who's got a podcast coming up with Bonnie, who is lovely, but you won't actually hear in this recording. But she was there. And it's important to remember all that were there. So enjoy our conversation. Listen, learn. And then go off and enjoy the rest of your week. And I will speak to you again soon. And I wish you, yeah, a very lovely week. All right. Kate, I saw that you came out with um, an episode that was along the lines of solidarity. Is that something you still want to talk about today with us?
made this podcast. I started it since lockdown. So for those of you that don't know me, I'm usually uh, doing stand-up comedy, but obviously I can't right now. So I made a podcast. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to collect stories about love. And I was kind of, I'd done a lot of the kind of self-love thing and people had sent me recordings. Edna sent me a really good recording. Um, um, people exploring like what love meant in these times and so on. And then I had suggested to Sammy, we do one as like love as solidarity because um, there's a lot of activist groups in Berlin that can't, yeah, that, well, like just globally that are struggling in this time and so on. And so I really love the idea of love as solidarity. Um, and then I kind of wanted to do, I think that's when I reached out to Uriah and said like, let's do something that's also like love as solidarity amongst like, black women who also do podcasts in Berlin because they just think it's interesting. I think we get pitted against one another very regularly and that might have been my, like that might come from somewhere else, like a feeling within me, I don't know, but like it feels like with black women, it's like there's only ever space for so many of us or like it's limited, whereas like no white men are been like, looked at it and be like, wow, there's so many white men there. Maybe they don't need another one. They're like, there's so many white men there. What they need is another one. Exactly like mm -hmm. that's why I would pass it to Cassian too about this because she like we talked about that on tones of melanin like a year ago and this is definitely a topic that comes up often in our community but I don't think that it's discussed enough or um, people really acknowledge the fact that um, that's all stereotypes and that's basically just projecting people's stereotypes onto our community about our community and uh, I love the I, I love what you and Cassian are doing, which is to yes. break through these these ideas that black women don't support each other. Support each other too, um, <laughs> and especially in our diasporic communities, I found the exact opposite. Yeah, same, um, same. You know? True, true. And true. like, of course, I know this ties in so much into like tokenism, like you said. You know, there being space only for one black for one person, black one person, black woman, etc. No. It is, it's definitely rough out here, and that's not the case. Like, we know that there's so many of us out here, but, um, you know, who's going to get featured on NPR or Deutschlandfunk or something? Maybe just that one tokenized person, through no fault of their own, because black women are never at fault as far as I'm concerned. Same. Um, <laughs> so, never, ever, they ever, ever, being ever. Their brilliant they were being their brilliant selves and they got tokenized, okay? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, I love that you all are doing this and the fact that Cassian did this before and we have to keep having this conversation proves exactly that point, that we have to always be each other's biggest advocates. So. Yeah, and I also think that um, it's also kind of dehumanizing to refuse us conflict amongst ourselves, you know? Because we are not a kumbaya singing people. <laughs> we don't hold, you know, to expect us to like run into rainbows and stuff and like hold hands all the time. That's kind of infantilizing us as well, you know, because we are allowed to go through conflicts with one another and amicably solve them. And so it's also like, I don't like that aspect that like solidarity always means black women like acting, um, performing our love instead of being authentic with one another. Well, I would also say that this um, idea or sense that the black women, at least in the Berlin context or the other contexts that I've lived in, are pitted against each other or that there's this like animosity and such. Like, I, I agree that that might be a projection that people might have more so than the reality, because at the end of the day, um, so often we rely on each other as like emotional support, care like someone to do your hair, <laughs> like just basic things. Yes. That, like, like my hair, I don't know what to do with it. This is why it's wrapped up. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. Come and see just, me, Edna. <laughs> so I'm Come just like, me. you know, at the end of the day, I can't, I don't know. I, I think that might just also be this, um, what people, white supremacy might want from us, that we might hate yeah. ourselves and each other. <laughs> when like, of course, I agree with you, Gosi, that like at the end of the day, we're complex beings and we might, we might not always get along, but the general tone is a level of like respect <laughs> of like, I depend on you, you, you get it. Like I spent like half an hour just on the street talking to a black woman that I met only once, but we we're like, Hey, how's it going? Just like, like, and it was just like, and I was, there was already a warmth in it, in that conversation 
that doesn't happen that I, I don't know i just don't i don't ignore my kin my skin folk <laughs> like i just don't but yeah. i don't know it's weird and maybe it's because white women do that to each other that they expect us to do that to each other <laughs> they they look they're they're petty they don't like they don't respect each other and then they treat each other like crap thinking oh why are they friends why are they you know kikiing and then i'm like i'd be kikiing i'd be like whatever and I don't, I don't know i think it's it's a projection a false one it is you it know is. what edna what you just said is so fucking brilliant Think about it in terms of pop culture. As soon as you said, like, the cat fight, I, I thought about all of, like, the women comedies, right? And, of yes. course, women have been fighting for a long time to be recognized as comedians. Kate, I'm sure you can speak more about that. And especially when they're in a vis- they're presenting visually, like, as, as visual comedians. And when we look at all of the popular films where it's, female comedians i'm i'm talking again mostly from like this american eurocentric um perspective um it's always like the the arc of the story is the cat fight in the women like if she, i think about she, bridesmaids yes, yes you know like yes, it, and, yes. and look i could only really call bridesmaids because shit there still aren't that many like women comedians Men. who are highlighted yeah. in mainstream like True. blockbuster movies and then when you look at uh, what its counterpart would be, which would be Girls Trip, it was all about black women solidarity. It's always black women working together to take down that cheating motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? It's always like that thing. Remember set it off or to rob right? a bank. Like we ain't like we ain't got nothing better to do with our time. Yeah. And then and then and even though that is the running narrative in the films, then it comes across in then mainstream society, oh, black women don't work together. Don't you see us in these movies? Didn't you see us in Set It Off? Come on now. Come on. Living single, <laughs> living single. Exactly. If we move from movies to TV shows, oh, we're getting even into more like the color proof. Okay, let's mm. talk about um, talk about girlfriends. Genius show. Yeah. All black women working together. And when they had disagreements, they figured it out. It might have taken them a, two seasons, two seasons. Long, <laughs> but it showed that it's not about throwing away, throwing away throwing people. Oh, that even black though sometimes you, you do have to throw away some, yeah. something sometimes. Yeah. But, but it's like a completely different narrative when we are in control of, of presenting, of presenting ourselves. ourselves. True. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I like, I like that that's the narrative that um, a lot of, you know, black um, directors and so on, especially um, around black women. Um, because in real life, like in reality, that as Edna was saying, that they cannot against each other. And you see it like in the music industry, for example, you have uh, two artists that are on the same caliber and they're trying to pin against each other. Um, an example is Nicki Minaj and Party D, like they're trying to pin them against each other so much mm. so that it actually becomes their story. And it's really not, it's a story that the industry created and the industry mm. and by white men. Yeah, and they create these narratives and push people against each other when it's like there's room for everybody at the top. Look at freaking Beyonce coming out making this song with Megan That's a Imagine if Cardi B and Nicki Minaj were supposed to come together and make a song together. You know what I mean? Like just say no for what men. You know the the media or the the industry kind of pins black women against each other, especially when they're in the same type of field of work. And if we as like I this is why I love Megan Stallion. Like I love her for her music, but I love her because she is just like listen, y'all aren't gonna create no fucking fight for me. Don't do that shit because I love everybody and I'm gonna work with everybody. Don't do that. Don't create any fights in my life. I if I don't like you, you will know. Don't don't try to write articles about me not liking person and that person because I'm gonna work with my life. I also think um part of the problem is this concept that they can only be the one. So, you know, we just have one rap queen and we just have the one, you know, acting, whatever. And then we just have the one black female podcast in Berlin. And I think that's what needs to be dismantled is this idea that we can't, there isn't enough space for all of us. And I was watching an interview from this woman called Stephanie Beatrice. She's like Latino American um, actress from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And she was talking about the fact that when she found out that a different um, Latino woman had been cast for another role, 
she like immediately gave up. She was like, because there's only ever the one. You know, there's only ever one Latino woman in a in, in a show. You can't have two of them. And I just remember like thinking to myself, this is not just her like her reality. This is all of us. It's we, we had to put Nikki and Cardi against each other because of this idea that there has to be one female rapper that's topping the charts. I'm like, no, there's enough space for for everyone. And I think also and just from our perspective as like, you know, women of color, we just have to realize as well that synergy is important. I think a lot of us know it. We just have to like own it. I don't know, for me, I would, for me, so I, I move, I move between, I move between different worlds and I would say that when I'm the only black person in an academic or literary setting, it's miserable. And as soon, as soon, as soon as there's like black people, melanin, etc. I remember attend, attending my first um, conference where it was like all black people, just like all black at Columbia University, Columbia University. So I was going to say that the first time I attended a all black conference um, with at Columbia University with scholars who are sociologists, literature scholars, etc. That shit was banging. People were like sharp, on point, integrate. They were more um, creative with the ways in which they were um, describing their scholarship. They integrated music, ethnography, you name it, they did it. And with humor and style. I was like, I want to be like them. So for me, as someone who's seen what it looks like at least in the academy when you have actual representation that represents the global majority it looks beautiful it looks absolutely beautiful and then in south africa i was there this winter very briefly and i was at the university of cape town there was a decolonial workshop with just black africans (laughs) and it was again beautiful and i don't know i guess now that the more that i see that happening in real time the more i realize it's not just it shouldn't be this like I'm the only one if anything there should be more of a work to decolonize and to you know democratize and really try to have a way of thinking about representing more groups because at the end of the day white men don't think oh there should only be one of us here oh why you know there's too many of us or this is like I'm going to compete against that one in fact they give each other high fives they hire each other they're always promoting each other it's just it's such a different reality Exactly. I agree with what you say 100%. Yeah. Like, I, uh, as you were saying, you know, with white men, they promote each other and, and they're like helping each other to get to the top. You know what I mean? And it's like, we have been taught to kind of keep each other down, to be crabs in a bucket, right? To cr- crawl over each other to try to get to the top. And that's what we as a generation need to like do to kind of teach the generation to come and even the generation before us. Like, hey, listen, we don't need to claw each other down into the fucking bucket. All we need to do is build a fucking rope and drop the rope down for everybody else to climb out too. You know, like, I don't understand why this is not more evident in our culture and in our community. I, I do see women who are making it that way more often now. And I love it. I love to see it. I love to see when black women are out here building each other up and saying, oh, I'm in podcasting. You want to do podcasting? Let's do podcasting together. I will come on your show. You come on my show. We record. I will promote your shit. You promote my shit. And we do this together and get each other to the top. And I don't understand why it's not like that more. I feel I feel like I well, I feel like I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, do white men help each other out? I don't know if they're that nice even sometimes. But um we don't even <laughs> worry about them. But <laughs> but um it's like as someone who like grew up like my my mother is white and I grew up with a white mom and I grew up amongst white people and I was really often just the only black person I think and I think it's interesting because the narrative that I have about my story is very similar to a lot of Afro-Deutsch people that's a really common story is like white family no not very much like visible black culture that they grew up with and I think because I was one of the few I was taught to only expect to ever see a few around. So in the beginning, when I did like first move to London and encounter like other, like I always, like I knew I wanted to leave this place and go and live around black people. When I moved to London, I moved to Brixton. I made like a point of like trying to find the black people. Um, But yeah, like I don't, I remember like competing with like, or like just struggling to work out how I related to black people who'd grown up with other black people. 
And it wasn't until like the second time I moved to Berlin, which was like a year and a half ago that I was like, I need people of color around. I need black people around. I cannot do this without black people anymore. Like it just, I'd hit a point in life where I was like, no, I can't be, we need to like, yeah, like have community and stuff. And now it's like everything I want to do. So when I do comedy, if I find like one other black person in the audience, I'm like, I'm running down like, Poor Daniela, she's a Afro-Italian woman that came to a comedy show and I chased her out the bar and was like, do you want to do comedy? You need to do comedy as well. <laughs> I was like, come do my open mic. And like, bless her, she did. But like, <laughs> I was like, you should do comedy. We need other black women. And now I'm like all about building those platforms. But I think it's it, like, if you're someone like me, and there are a lot of us that grow up in really white spaces, we're just used to being the only one. And then it gets confusing yeah. when we're not the only one anymore. Yeah, and Kate, um, I was actually thinking about that with Ria, with my daughter as well, who's biracial. And um, she also struggles with her blackness and her place in the world because she's not sure of her blackness. And I was thinking also how, like, identity is so complex and that even though we are all black, but we are also so many other things and we can also celebrate those many things. And our blackness is what helps us find each other, but it's not the only thing that defines us. We are so multifaceted as people, and we also deserve space to celebrate that. And and there's also like, yeah, like also black spaces are not safe spaces for all black people, or like all black people don't find safety in all black spaces, let's put it this way. And also to, to, to know that, and also to not hold white black people to a standard of 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 like kind of I don't know it's kind of like we have to like I know we have to do a lot of caretaking of one another but this this like um standard of like that also like as black women we also have to like constantly perform for the white gaze our niceness to one another and our solidarity even to one another we don't have to naturally be cohesive just yes. because we are black yes. women yes yeah. I really think that's a really fair, fair, well-made point. Yeah, but the society doesn't really make room for that. Yeah. Right? It's like, it, 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 it's always being enforced upon us. And that's why I think it goes hand in hand with this trope of like black women always being strong. Because we do have to be strong to actually deal with the constant barrage of people telling us who we are when we're like and not what we have actually to do as well and, and what we, we have, have to, to do yeah how we also like, have to relate to one another <laughs> what do i have to do i think all i have to do is stay black and die as my best friend says <laughs> shout out to patty uh-huh so <laughs> you know like there's like yeah we do have to be strong but there is not enough space made also within our community if i may say so for us to be weak to be weak yeah, for us to I talk mean, about yeah. that we are not feeling strong or to talk about that i am feeling vulnerable like i i don't think that there's like there's just not enough room made period to see us as individual human beings like we are constantly carrying the yoke, the yoke. of a label the collective yeah at the same time dealing with all these other labels that are coming right back at us and that shit is exhausting which is also why I appreciate that everybody wanted to, yeah, not really talk too much about the news this week. True. I mean, I do want to just touch on it briefly because I am sure that we are all feeling a lot of heartbreak. Um, but I am also going to say, like, I'm getting to that point where I'm just like, I'm seeing it again and again and again and True. again and again and again and again and again. And as a poet... You write about these things and like I literally can just dust off my poem about Eric Gardner, Erica Gardner, and just like change the names and it's the same fucking like I can use the same poem again. again. It's bullshit. I hate it. Like I hate that as an artist like that that's even possible like that that reflects my reality. Um, So with all of that going on, I have been like taking a lot of time off of social media, even Same. though this is supposed Same. to be the time where we're like connecting the most on social media. It's just been hard for me. Like, it's, I don't know how y'all feel about this, but like, I know it's important to talk about like the news and a lot of the hor- horrific things that happen to us every day. But like, I, I don't get like a trigger warning for every single one of those videos or posts. 
And so it can be like, oh, I'm having a great old day. And then here comes like some really violent graphic material that I don't have any control over. True, true. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'm saying all of this to say that quarantine, of course, has been really difficult. I'm lucky and blessed to have like my Tanty table <laughs> co-host. Of course, our Megan isn't joining us today because this is a black women's meeting. Um, but having them has been like you know, a saving grace, not only in the worst of times, but also like the best of times. And uh, that is something that we really wanted to accomplish with Tanti Table is showing that in the diaspora, there are so many voices and you need to make room at that table. Also speaking of light skin privilege, like I'm very aware of like the privileges that, that sure. come with the body that I'm walking around in. And it's my responsibility to make sure that like spaces are made for people who are not given this opportunity because people who look like me are so often tokenized. So lean um, back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, lean back. lean back. Lean exactly, back. yeah. And talking about these things, um, especially during the time of corona, it's like it can get lost, especially we saw at the beginning, you know, a lot of our initiatives, like our social justice initiatives, just sort of like got lost in the, in the GoFundMes, which is completely justifiable. Um, but now, seeing all of the things that have happened in the last few weeks, um, we see that, you know, no virus can protect you from humanity's formation of its own, you know, um, casualties and horrific genocides, et cetera, sure. et cetera. Um, so I, I feel really trapped by that. So having these opportunities to, like, meet up with y'all have just been like so important to me and yeah and it it keeps like some sense of sanity because it's it's like you have to find joy and I feel like the world always recognizes and admires our joy and struggle so fucking much right but like I mean we can't stop like engaging in joyful practice just because of the way the world sees us, Jesus, you know? True. So basically, in a nutshell, I've been twerking my ass off at home. I've been learning the savage dance, which made me realize I'm not that great of a dancer. <laughs> so, like, big up to Megan the Stallion for releasing all of that. Oh, my God. And keeping us, like dancing and laughing and also big up to all of the people out there i don't want to just say women even though it was a lot of women who were leading like the the little viral Where video yeah. that was like oh you start off you know in your curlers and then like you do your hair and your makeup and then you're like Bleh. so um yeah those things have been those things have been like keeping me joyful at this time and also meeting up with y'all and then Drinking with Quincy. <laughs> Drink responsibly. Yes. <laughs> Stay in school, kids. <laughs> like an Afrobeats playlist at the beginning. And every morning, like after my shower, I was doing 10 minutes, just like drying myself to like Naomi Campbell's Afrobeats playlist. And I have to say, it sets your day off like great. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, I would, I would say that... Um, this whole lockdown curtailed with yeah the news. Like I agree with you, Ria, that I've also had to take a step back from certain aspects of social media. I'm so glad I'm not on Facebook because Facebook automatically will show you feeds of things, and I just don't have the time or space to be um, to be shown a spectacle and violence. It's like in in many ways the only reason that people are like outraged, the ones that, that, that they show outrage for are the ones in which they've seen the videos. So people haven't marched in the street in the same capacity as with like Breonna Taylor because there's no video. People march in the streets, you know, they haven't marched in the street for Tony McCade, a transgender person who was, you know, also murdered. Um, and it's just like trans invisibility in this whole thing is also something that pops up. And so I, I have a lot of rage, but a lot of the rage isn't just about maybe... Uh, the white supremacy, white supremacy and police state violence, but just how for the 364 days out of the year when they're not, people aren't protesting, they don't give a fuck about black life and black American life to, for that matter. So if we're going to talk about the complexities of blackness, I would say like, I, I guess sometimes I find not all, but that it's just, there's a different situation of growing up poor with immigrant parents in the United States where 
the, like my mom's a janitor at a hospital. She's on her floor is a coronavirus floor. My brother has been um, is mentally ill in and out of like mental health institutions and prison and all kinds of things. It's just different. <laughs> like my blackness, because it's a, a being poor and black, um, looks fundamentally different than other forms of blackness where the class element, the colorism element, the just multiple la layers of migration and dispossession, it's just, it's just dark. And I'm learning to just like every day, basically unshed a little bit of that trauma, which is why I have strategies to help um, with that. Like sometimes I'm just not okay. Other days I'm just like, I can't talk to anyone and I meditate and I do whatever, but I'm not always gonna be joyful. And it's, it's sometimes isolating because not everyone's going to understand what I'm going through. And, and like if even other black people, which is something that that's something I had to like kind of reckon with. Um, and I sometimes have to call the people that I know 10,000 kilometers away who have a closer experience to the version, this life experience that I don't see in Europe. Like I just don't. Um, so it's just it's really complex because it's not for me, it's not automatic to be like, okay, I'm going to be joyful today. And like, it's going to happen. Like it, it, it's a, it's a process and it's about feeling safer. Um, and it's about having rituals that allow me to feel whole be, even in a place, a city, a continent that doesn't fully respect people who look like me, who talk like me, who come from the Americas and are descended of slaves. It's just, it's a, just a different, um situation but i'm learning i'm learning that like to find that strength from within um but this this week has been hard <laughs> like i'll admit at the same time i've also been organizing like last night i had a blm i helped to organize a blm stomptisch online tomorrow i'll be at a protest for esd the initiative schwarz deutschland so there'll be a socially distant mass march um against the state violence in the u.s and yeah, I have my activism, which helps, but it's, it's definitely not enough. It's not enough. Something that really bothers me, I'm going to try and take a sharp left turn, but um, in just this situation this week and what she started off by addressing this thing of like, we, we protest when there's a video. Mm -hmm. And something that has always bothered me and really part of my inspiration to start my podcast was this issue of like black bodies and how comfortable we are showing them at their worst. Mm. And I'm not going to talk about it from the perspective of the US because we're all tired, but just thinking of it from like I'm Zimbabwean and the five years I've lived in Germany the only times I see stories about Africa, any part, any part of Africa being told, it's always there to kind of accentuate or emphasize things like poverty or sickness yeah. or disease and how it's rampant. The number of times I saw people or images of people who um, were like deathly ill with Ebola, but you've never seen those kinds of things when it's like Italy has coronavirus. You, you don't see people on their deathbed. And it's, yeah. it's something that like really frustrates me because it shows that we're not viewed as human. Ooh. Like full no. stop. We are, we're dehumanized. It's like, it's, it's a, it's something, you know, it's a, it's a something. It's not a person. That's how, that's how black bodies are viewed. And I, I'm like a photographer. That's like my hobby turned profession turned side hustle. And I have like taken it upon myself to go out of my own way to have a conscience when I tell stories with the camera and to push that down the throats of every other photographer that I work with, because this is where it starts from. You know, it, it even like, and I'm, I'm going to try and avoid like the situation from this week, but like starts with people, you know, like when your German friend goes to Ghana or, you know, Uganda, <laughs> Oh my gosh, like their life is totally about to change. And I'm like, what is in your mind when you pick up your camera, get off the airport and you are literally, because that's how cameras work. You can take a picture of leaves and have it be phenomenal. You know, yeah. just skies, just sunsets. You can do that. And it's like, we, we get in, we, we're treated, black bodies are treated as these things that it's okay to see them at their worst. 
It's only in fact we have to see them at their worst in order to believe that there's they're there. You know, we we have to perpetuate or have this picture of the starving kid or the kid with kwashioka in order for anyone to understand that there's kwashioka in in Zimbabwe or wherever. Why why aren't we doing the same thing with with German hospitals? Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't we taking pictures of senior citizens who die alone in Germany? Mm-hmm. We're not doing that. Right. Because we respect them. We, we view them with dignity. And this is one of the like most frustrating things for me. Like, sorry for just ranting, <laughs> no, no, rant but it's, it's really rant like we can we can do better. The world yeah. should do better. And I don't know what it's going to take. Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, like, is it the case, though, that we respect them? Or is it the case that we allow them to disrespect us? You know what I mean? Because I feel like in order for someone to be able to take a photo of um, someone on their deathbed or, you know, sick children or yeah. whatever the case may be, the people around them or them themselves will have to give permission for that and and a lot of white people like they believe that they are entitled to everything including the black body right yeah and so then they would just walk into a place and go well i'm here to take a picture snap snap but it is up to the people of that space to be like listen what the fuck do you think you're doing turn that camera off right now delete those pictures or i'm gonna break that shit because they would do it to us so why are we so afraid to do it to them that's the real question here for me. It's only recently, like not like maybe two, three years ago that I started going, you know what? Yeah, white people, you're not going to invade my space any longer. So when I'm walking on the street and there's a white woman coming towards me thinking that she's not going to move all the way, I then look her dead in the face like, bitch, if you think I'm going to move, you make a sad mistake. You make a sad ass mistake because I'm going to walk straight. You're going to have to be the one to walk around. Excuse me, sorry. We're just saying yes, 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 yes. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but but really, it's those little things. It's the little things like being in the grocery store and checking out, and them being behind you, rushing you to get from the register. I'm, I look at them like, bitch, I'm not moving. You're gonna, your ass is gonna have to wait until I'm done putting my groceries in my motherfucking bag before you can start cashing out. It's about telling the cashier at the register, can you please wait? to start scanning her things until I move away from here. It's just these little things, right? To let them know, like, listen, you invading our space is not gonna happen anymore. I guess one, one thing I would say is, um, oh, sorry. I was gonna say that I don't think it's a question of us allowing it and art like us being at fault. In fact, if anything, it's a history and hundred long history of white people invading your space as, you, as you're saying, and not getting consent in many cases. To the point of, you know, obviously one of the major examples is of um, stealing actual people like black folk and under slavery, but also even the, the, the foundation and the history of what a museum is, the modern museum was built on them stealing objects from us, as well as our bodies. Like at the end of the day, you know, what is, you know, South Africa, Sarah Bartman and her buttocks post-humanist, like after she was dead, was circulated throughout Europe. The fact that a black woman's bot, like, you know, sexual organs were distributed and seen as a spectacle like they've been doing this for hundreds of years and the camera is one aspect and like that visualization is one layer of how our bodies get dehumanized circulated and and it's it's this weird thing that um uh, uh activist uh, scholar that i know wrote a piece on this recently it's like what is a different like why is it that it took picture a picture like emmett till's in order for black folk in the United States to really, or not black folk, but the United States to really have and spark the civil rights. Because there are black people being lynched all the time in the US, but Emmett Till's photograph in that wide circulation in major publications is what finally allowed white people in the United States to care. So I think that images are powerful, but what I think you're pointing to, Ropa, is we shouldn't have our bodies constantly on display as if the, there aren't family members behind those bodies grieving as if there aren't family members who the, those people have other ways in which they want to be represented and and i think part of the issue is like how do we collectively yeah challenge some of that 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 circulation how do we ensure that people don't 
without our consent um display and profit from <laughs> our bodies because at the end of the day with the media they profit from that stuff the ad sales etc so this is why this is what i was saying like in terms of shutting that down like we have to be the ones to stand up and say listen no you're not going to do this why why are we not suing you know what i mean like this this um gentleman uh, that uh, the situation that happened last week his family should be like you know what okay you took the video but i'm a sue you know what cuz white people they sue the shit out of everything they sue somebody for a hot fucking cup of coffee when they know that the coffee is going to be goddamn hot why the fuck are we not so suing too you know what i mean sue their asses for putting our pictures up sue their asses for taking videos of us sue their asses for trying to do, to anything if they step on our fucking toe ow she broke my toe because it costs we so much money to so many sue and we don't have those resources we don't have those connections and shit like it takes shit like this to pile up before finally some rich firm does a pro bono case to to bring like a whole class action lawsuit but that takes a minimum, minimum a decade. decade and you have to pray that somebody gives it to you like pro bono it's too much money and that's why like and it at is that time you're also cycle of you're also you know, bereaved, poverty you're bereaved as well and that's also what it means like it's a cycle of yeah like we are also and it also goes back to how we are also operating as a community we are operating from very low resources and it's scarce and that's also why we are tokenized so much because our resources are so fucking scarce and like mm-hmm. that's also why we sell each other out we stab each other like you know we are all fighting for our own individual survival alongside one another and white supremacy is what we 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 all trying to fight but alongside that comes all these other things that come with it like i mean what happens when your son gets killed at a riot what do you do who do you call do you call the police who beat him up last week what do you do you know like like it it's it's kind of like yeah and i think like to 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 put that onus back onto our community is also so not fair like like we we are really really i think every black person would like to have that kind of justice given to them but it always for us we all i mean every single person who's black who's pursued any justice for themselves would know that that road is fucking long and expensive and it's also by design it's not it's not it's not just happenstance <laughs> it's not happenstance it's by design like it's fucking by design and yeah i'm also going to say that um i think you know respect is is the default like respect is neutral So respect is not is not supposed to be like a positive like then I respected it. It's where you're supposed to be inherently, right? So we respect white bodies because that's what human beings are supposed to do. You respect that's other bodies. Body. <laughs> no, I mean like respect like sorry. <laughs> I don't. But I mean like no, they have to prove themselves. White people have to prove themselves. I mean the sense I I I naturally have the sensitivity to be like, oh, um, this this family, this is the situation. Oh my gosh, this might not be something that they want documented. So I'm naturally going to put it away, whether it's a black family, a white person, or whatever, because respect is a default. Why is it not the default for white people? And why is it not the default that is extended to black people? And that's my issue. And the second thing I was going to say is also that there's a there's a certain privilege that we do have because we we are we have had to interact with white people for a long enough time to start researching and start being angry so that i can't say that for like a zimbabwean kid you know in a small town somewhere who allows someone to take a picture of them i can't expect them to have the same level of awareness that i would have to say hey put that camera away you know it's it's just unfortunate but that's what it is and the second thing is in in all our like brokenness we also have a socioeconomic privilege in a sense where we can we can choose or we can say no to certain things or we can stand up for ourselves which again i cannot necessarily say that for every like zimbabwean kid somewhere where they're like you know i'm just trying to i'm just trying to get my next meal I can't I can't yeah. expect them to have the same like oh no put the camera away you know so that's what what forces me to start asking questions about why aren't we being respected when respect is the default I guess I guess it also depends where cuz if you go to Haiti for example my parents are from Haiti where there's been a military occupation since 2004 
And because of that, Haitians will step be like, get the fuck out of my face. In fact, there have been a lot of, um, because of the foreign military occupation by the UN, that resistance. And there's a history, 200, over 200 years of Haitians doing that. I think it depends on, well, A, if you're, if you're pushed to that limit, actually people have been, have been stepping up and be like, fuck that shit. In fact, the only times I've ever been shot at towards by like military people have been in Haiti when unarmed Haitians, and I, I, I was there blending in with everyone, um, were like, you know, just wanting to cross the road and some, some officer hit one of them and then people fought back. <laughs> and then they, they came, they, so like I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. It is possible, it just depends on the country, the context, and the legacies of resistance. That's true, yeah. You know, I, I always have this conversation with people, and um, I think it's one of the main reasons why um, in society or in our culture, in the Black community in general, why we have such separation between, for example, uh, Africans from the continent of Africa, um, and we have uh, Caribbean people, and then we have American Black, and we're all like separated and all are just like, you know, butting heads all the time. And I always say that one of the reasons why is because the Africans are the free, the Caribbean people are the people who fought to be free, and the Americans are the people who waited to be freed. You know what I mean? And so we have this different way of thinking in, in, in a sense. Okay, if, um, what's his face? Uh, this fucking president with the tall hat, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. He was the one that uh, initially like uh, signed the- Emancipation Proclamation. Exactly, exactly. For, uh, for that to start kind of like a, I guess a trickle down, a domino effect of revolution in America. Whereas in the Caribbean, every motherfucking African in the Caribbean fought, they they burnt down farms, they burnt down uh, slave masters, they rebelled completely to, to be free, right? And in America, it was like, okay, until Martin Luther King and um, they had, um, uh, gosh, what is this? Uh, Marcus Garvey. But Marcus Garvey's also, he's also revered in Jamaica quite a lot. Like he's one of the people who came in and said like, listen, we have to, you know, build our own businesses. We have to do these things. We have to watch out for our people. We have to, you know, he was one of the ones that pushed it. Then came Martin Luther King and so on and so forth with like the peaceful protesting. But in terms of fighting, and I actually mean like murdering people, Caribbeans did that shit. And certain African countries, uh, people did that shit. For example, Ethiopia, where they have never been colonized because of the fight that they put up. So it's it's about also the mindset, I think, which is one of the, the aspects that keeps us butting heads as black people. You know what I mean? And because you have Africans that go to the United States and they're going to schools and whatever, and then they have black people telling them, oh, go back to Africa, you African monkey and blah, 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 rate it. Hey, because of this mindset, even, um, I don't know if you know Yedena, he's a, he's a musician. Um, he was like, when he moved to America, um, he was teased in school about uh, African this and African that, blah, 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 right? because of the way he spoke, because of the way he was. And it's this mindset that has been ingrained in us that we have had to go through this, uh, you know, constant brainwashing of this one against that one, light skin versus dark skin, the old against the young, this person culture versus that culture and so on and so forth. I think this is one of the things that keeps us so separated as people. You know what I mean? As a I people, would say you know what also, I mean? am I muted? No. I would say also um, it's genuine misunderstanding because of the lack of stories that are told. So when Jadena encountered African-American classmates, like they, they had nothing but like coming to America to work yeah. with, you know? True, um, true story. That, that's all they had. Uh <laughs> okay, if you think about it, right, like when African people go to Jamaica, listen, Jamaicans will welcome you with open arms and a clap and a freaking, yeah, my brother from Africa. I don't know how it is in Haiti and Trinidad and all the other countries, but when we have Africans come over, our Black Americans, we absolutely sh we show absolute like just complete love. So I don't understand why it's different when Black Africans and Black Caribbean people go to America. I don't understand. And I, I mean, I guess it's because of the way slavery developed in America. 
that made it so difficult for that connection to be there? Why Africans have to go to school in America and be teased about their blackness? Um, why Jamaicans go to school? I mean, they're not Jamaicans aren't really teased because everybody's trying to be Jamaican, you know. But um, <laughs> but it's like it's like why why do we have this? You know, I, I and as you said, it, it might be the lack of storytelling and so on. Um, because in Jamaica we do learn black history we don't learn white history like that you know it's all about caribbean history it's all about like queen nanny who basically um helped to emancipate jamaica who her and her brothers came to jamaica and basically caused the rebellion we don't learn about like the depths of slavery like what you know what i mean they don't teach that in the schools there they teach about our resilience and our strength and you know the things that african uh kings and queens did and the, the things that uh, people in uh, activists in Jamaica, that's what we get taught. And in America, it's different, I guess, because they teach about white American history more so than anything else. Well, that's precisely it. What Ropa described and what you, you're just ending on, that at the end of the day, we get a sanitized version of history that is very Eurocentric. Like I was born in settler colonial United States. And the fact that there's an erasure generally of indigenous people, like I had to do that work on my own to be like, oh yeah, this is Seminole land. This is Mississippi land. This is Lenape land. And it's, a, it's, it's an erasure that's by design. And it's an erasure that's not only misinforming or not informing at all about the African continent or Asia or the rest of the Americas, but it's one in which you're basically taught to hate yourself and you're taught a sanitized version of the civil rights movement and of the um, you know civil war. So it could be like, yeah, well, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, that's not entirely true. There were rebellions. There were all kinds of rebellions, Bacon's rebellions, uprisings, and burning of plantations in the Americas. In fact, if anything, uh, indigenous people and black people came together at times ran out to the swamps of Florida and like on some of the islands, which is why you have in some parts of the American South, indigenous black tribes, because they were collectively resisting white plantation owners. And so it's a bit more complex than that. And so, so part of the animosity, I would say, towards some people who are African-American towards Africans would be that we just, there's a lot of miseducation and we just also didn't get the same kind of like black empowerment. You, you learn that through practice. You learn that as you get to kind of recalibrate um, your mind towards like a kind a more pan-Africanist or whatever, however you want to say, see it. But it's not automatic that there's going to be that, that knowledge because it's not given and disseminated in the education system. Yeah. And see, you just taught me something as well because I was ignorant to that fact that um, there were people who, you know, rebelled and burned plantations and that the indigenous people and the African people came together. We've been resisting chaos. We've been yeah. resisting white supremacy <laughs> since the beginning of ages. Yeah. We've been resisting. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, here. Okay. Okay. We don't want this shit. <laughs> None of us did. <laughs> Well, even Angela Davis in her book, Women, Race and Class, one of the, another way that people resisted, particularly black women, is by committing infanticide because they were basically the, they were producing the next generation of slaves. So they were like, I'd rather kill this child than to have them be another slave on this plantation and then be bondage. Damn, they made yep. up a law where every so, child you are going to have belongs to basically exactly, is yeah. a slave. And like, so we basically... We did the biblical kill shit. Our child. We killed our firstborn sons for that shit. Yeah. It was, it was like a very corporal, all-encompassing situation, but the resistance happened. It's just white supremacy. That shit's a bitch. It is. It is. It is. I agree. Exactly. <laughs>